Which players were on the most fantasy championship teams in 2018? Which players killed the most teams? What were the year's big stories? What's going to happen next year? I'll ask Ray Murphy and Todd Zola in our end-of-season roundtable next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September 28th. It's show number 38 of the 2018 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have a special edition for you. It's our end of the season roundtable with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com and Todd Zola of Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. We'll be discussing the year's top stories, some players who really helped their fantasy teams, players who really didn't help their fantasy teams, players who are targets for next season, or players to avoid next season. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's our season-ending roundtable. You'd best believe we're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this special end-of-season edition, it's part one of our roundtable discussion. And let's start by introducing our guests. It's funny how hosts so often describe guests as needing no introduction and then introduce them anyway, isn't it? Well, first, it's my pleasure to introduce the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site, a supporter of this podcast and a frequent guest as well, Ray Murphy. How's it going? Fighting down the stretch here, Patrick. Couple days to go and trying to close the deal. And also with us, our regular guest on Baseball HQ Radio, a talk with Todd, uh, Todd Zola from Rotowire, ESPN, and Masters Ball. Todd, how's everything going? Uh, just getting over a cold, but other than that, can't complain. And unlike Ray, who's still, uh, still, still, well, I'm, I'm grinding in a couple leagues. I'm just not grinding for first. So uh, I can't wait for their season to be over, but probably for different reasons than Ray. And I'm uh, I'm grinding to try to get out of 11th spot, and I think I have an outside chance. And frankly, fellas, I'm going to say if I do succeed in getting from where I was to, to 10th spot, I'll consider it a, a big accomplishment because I had such a terrible draft and a terrible early start to the year. I'm, I'm really pleased with how that, that side of it has gone. Uh, I always say, I know you guys agree, that you got to keep plugging even if you're down at the bottom of the standings. You should always be trying to pick up that extra s- standing spot. Yeah, sometimes there's no glory in that, but it's good that you're taking pride in it, Patrick, because that is important. And I know where you, I know where you were in May or so, and it was a, it's a real achievement to even find the waterline sometimes. All right, let's get started. Uh, the, before we start talking about particular players and positions and player values and that sort of thing, uh, what story in baseball this season do you think had the most important or interesting fantasy baseball ramifications? Let's start with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Uh, I'm going to be a little. Uh, self-referential and point out a piece of research I did a couple of weeks ago on the you know death of the 30 save reliever and the way the uh, saves pool has been fractured and I, I think this trend dovetails with some other ones I think you guys will probably talk about when you get to answer but I think the fracturing of the saves marketplace and what that does for player values and how we figure out how to prioritize saves in some of these single value categories you know there's a multi-year trend that the same thing is happening in stolen bases but now that this has happened to the saves pool, it, I think it really has some ramifications for how we how we go forward. So I think that's the uh, the, the death of the thirty save reliever is my answer here. 
Todd. Yeah, no, I I, I think Ray's got to hit on an interesting uh, topic, and it's also going to call into play relievers do more than saves, and we've got to pay even more attention to their ratios. I think that's an interesting – it's going to be an interesting way to approach closers next year. I'm going with uh, – and I know, Patrick, we've talked about this when we talk about FAB and how we do we save FAB to the deadline. I think teams are calling up rookies even earlier, and we even last year we said they're calling up so early – Juan Soto, et cetera, they're calling him up even earlier. And I think that's going to affect our, our draft and how we approach FAB and, and everything. And, and, and I, I applaud the teams, and we're still going to get some clubs that delay a few players next year, notably, you know, Vlad Guerrero perhaps. But I, in general, teams are more willing to call players up, and I think we have to really be ready for it and maybe be a little more amenable to taking a chance on one of these young kids. I think uh, when I hear that, uh, the first thing that pops into my mind, Todd, is is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And uh, clearly, the Blue Jays had no interest in bringing him up. And I've argued that I wouldn't be surprised if they uh, put off until the year after next to bring up Vladimir Guerrero for service time reasons. Uh, what do you think is, is the divide between teams that are willing to call up their top prospects and not simply a matter of we think we're competitive or we don't? I think it is, and it didn't happen with Atlanta. Because they, uh, you know, it turned out they ran away with the division and Philadelphia kind of collapsed. But, you know, the, the narrative was sometime in, in, in late July, early August, what if the Phillies win this division by a game or two? Will Atlanta be kicking themselves for not bringing up Acuna earlier? I know he got hurt and the whatnot, but they still delayed his, his, uh, his, his recall, you know, to the majors. So I think with Toronto, what I'm, we'll be looking for in the offseason is what they do about their pitching. If they seem to try to shore up their pitching a bit and try to go for it, then, yeah, I can see them calling up, giving them what we call the Chris Bryant treatment and, and keeping him down for two weeks, but then giving a recall, you know, making up some excuse so he still has to work on his defense or whatever, and then bringing him up two weeks so they at least get that extra year out of him. But, um, you know, it's, it's, you know it, it's the system. The system is what it is. And as long as until it gets changed, and it's going to take a change, it's not – it's not something that the owners can change alone. They're going to need the players to, you know, this is collectively bargained. The players agreed to this present system, you know, whether it's hurting their team overall or not. You know, it, you know, the, the players that voted it in went through it, so they said, well, it's a rite of passage for the younger kids to do the same thing, but ultimately could be hurting their their chances of winning a championship. So, uh, yeah, that's what you know. Toronto is just in a tough division with the Red Sox, the Yankees, and I, you have to say Tampa. You can't leave them out of the equation. And you know, mono, you know, if it's if I have Vlad on a minor league team, and I'm not if I don't have to activate him, even if he's activated in the majors, I might not activate him next year just because I may I don't know how you know I'd rather I think you know if I don't have to be you know some leagues, if you have a certain amount of plate appearances, you have to activate him, you lose him. If you're allowed just to keep him until you want to activate him, I'm not so sure I'd activate Vlad next year. Well, and that's what I'm thinking the Toronto might be uh, looking at because uh, the uh, general manager of the team, uh, Ross Atkins, was on uh, one of the radio broadcasts recently, and he basically came right out and said, we are not going to be competitive in 2019 and probably not real competitive in 2020. And then he finished off by saying, we are looking at being a competitive ball club in 2021. 
So that doesn't seem to give them a hell of a lot of incentive to bring up Vlad Guerrero Jr. or Bo Bichette or any of these other uh, young studs that they have um, because it's cheaper for them to leave them in the minor leagues for a couple of years, no matter though it's very harmful to the players. Uh, Todd, getting back to the idea that the players signed off on this, I understand that it's part of the collective bargaining agreement, but isn't there an argument to be made that none of the players in the minor leagues who are affected by this are in the union, so they didn't really get their say as far as uh, whether the bargaining agreement really ought to apply to them. Oh, that's absolutely that absolutely absolutely is the case. The, the players that voted it or agreed to it, I should say, have went through it. So it's you know, like I said, it's kind of a right. You know, we went through it, so will you, sort of thing. I don't want to call it hazing, but it's you know, it's it's the way it is. And there was probably something that the the owners conceded that would benefit the veterans, and that's why they agreed to it. So in the next agreement, the owners aren't going to just going to give it. They're going to want, okay, what do we get back? What what do we if we if we reduce the, the the amount of years or whatever it is, what do we get back from you? You know, in in exchange for only years or four years of control or 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 increasing the 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 arbitration number or whatever. So I think that that you know that, that they're going to have that's going to be a major issue because I think at this point we are getting close to a point where. Teams, I think teams are being hurt competitively, and I think Atlanta got kind of lucky this year that they didn't get burned by leaving Acuna down a week or two too long. It, very, it, it turned out, like I said, Philly's behind. You know, they were already eliminated, so seven or eight games behind, ten by the end of the season. But one of these years, it's gonna it's gonna burn a team, and I think they should do something about it. Let's not let's not have that happen. You know, we can be talking about the White Sox with. With Eloy Jimenez too, is somebody in this in this conversation, but they may be a little closer to competing between the players that they have in their division than than Toronto is in the Toronto is in the AL East. And of course, the players might want to reopen the matter too because it's starting to affect veteran pay because teams are realizing it's cheaper to keep a uh, you know for your twenty fourth and twenty fifth men on the roster, it's cheaper to keep a prospect rolling around or a young player because he's so cheap than hiring a free agent you know one of the sort of marginal free agent guys and the salaries are actually dropping. Uh, Ray, I'd like to ask you about this saves question in your research. The saves issue is not a matter that the number of saves is declining; it's more how they're being distributed among more or fewer pitchers is that not right that's right the overall saves number around mlb is fairly static you know there we haven't changed the save rule there's you know somebody's winning every game and you still get a save issued in you know a certain percentage of uh, of, of the wins in each each season that's not really changing but you know it's the lowest number of 30 plus save closer seasons that we've seen this year, I think we're only around a dozen of those, and it's the one of the lower numbers we've seen in the last 20 years. And it's a combination of closer jobs turning over quickly, you know, sort of an acknowledgement that you know teams are stocked with relievers that you know multiple guys on a team are capable of getting the last three outs in the ninth inning, and in some ways we have more match managers like Craig Council or Gabe Kapler who are willing to play matchups and or the most important factor in a reliever's effectiveness can be, in many cases, the number of days of rest. So rather than go to a you know, quote-unquote labeled closer the second, third, fourth night in a row, you give them a break in there and let somebody else do the job and reset the pen. So it really, it's the getting away of scripted roles of you're my seventh inning guy, you're my eighth inning guy, you're my ninth inning guy, and managers, you know, doing a little less paint by numbers and, you know, sort of using their brains a little bit more to figure out 
what the right way to play the matchups is and the right way to lay out their pen differently every night as opposed to, you know, just playing the same script back a hundred times. I was going to interrupt, but I wonder, Ray, if, and I think you, you kind of alluded to it maybe without exactly saying it. I think part of the, part of the reason for all this is there, and it doesn't take many teams, but there's, an, there's ample teams that are building super bullpens with, you know, setup men and seventh inning guys that would be close, 35 save closers on other teams, but they're paying, we're paying middle relievers now. Middle, middle relievers are getting paid. So th- some of these teams are going out and building these super pens and they're getting their money and they're, they're, they're not, they're not a really, you know, they're not getting saves for a lesser team. So I think, you know, if only three or four teams do this and each have one or two of these guys, that's seven or eight, you know, 35 save closers that aren't closing. That's absolutely right. If you look, look at, you know, m- maybe this is something that's going to happen every year now where playoff teams or playoff contending teams seem to be making the coming to the conclusion that one of the most cost-effective ways they can improve their roster in season is by building that super bullpen. So you find the A's going out and trading for Familia and Rodney and the uh, Yankees going to get Zach Britton and the Astros going to get Asuna and so on. And you're buying closers from other teams and creating closer role changes by and then taking those you know formerly established closers and throwing them in the seventh inning is definitely part of the dynamic here. So, um, you know, but, but and maybe that some of that has to do with the sort of have and have not dichotomy in MLB right now, but mm-hmm. sort of to that conversation you guys were having two or three minutes ago, I'm not so sure that's going to change either under the current collective bargaining rules. So we might be, uh, you know, th- this might not be a one season blip. And guys, uh, it seems to me that one of the critical developments as far as how these pitchers are paid in bullpens is going to be the move away in arbitration and in free agent negotiations from the save stat and towards wins above replacement and other metrics that we know are better reflections of a pitcher's actual contribution to his team's winning. If you're a closer and you know that you know 40 saves gets you an extra 5 million bucks in arbitration, you're going to be very reluctant to give up that closer role. But if the arbitrator says, I don't care about saves, let's see how actually valuable you were, then all of a sudden that's going to loosen it up as well. Uh, I thought the, uh, the story of the year, and it's similar to what Ray talked Talked about is uh, how teams are rewriting the script on pitcher usage, but for me it was Tampa's using the opener to replace their crummy fourth and fifth starters, uh, and I think that has the potential to rewrite how teams build and use all of their pitching staffs. Uh, stat heads like us have been clamoring for years to make smarter use of pitchers, especially pitchers who can't get through that third time in the order. Tampa started uh, 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 earlier this year in May, I think. Sergio Romo started those two games in a row. Since that time in mid-May, Tampa staff has logged 1,000 innings, 4,000 batters faced, and their team ERA of 338 is second in all of baseball, just behind the Dodgers. And if we compare the two payrolls, obviously the Rays are winning this by a mile, and their 116 whip is also similarly very, very good. And now we've seen in the last month or so, Oakland picked up the idea. They might even use it in the wildcard play-in game because they got no top starter. Rangers have tried it. Twins have tried it. And I've heard Minnesota is even using it in their minor league system, which indicates they're making a long-term play to figure out how this works. Guys, to me, this shows signs of becoming a thing, and it's really exciting, but it's going to change how we look at pitching as far as fantasy, isn't it? Well, um, yes and no. I, you mentioned the Twins and the Rangers. A lot of teams, especially in September, are going to the old-fashioned just bullpen game 
where it's you know nine relievers one inning apiece. Now the the A's are doing the the, the true opener follower thing with with, with Daniel Meng, Daniel Mengden coming in as the th- you know the primary pitcher as 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 we at Rotowire call it, you know the the the, the primary pitcher. So. How many teams go to an opener and a primary pitcher? I'm not sure. We're definitely seeing more teams, even than normal. Teams have always gone to bullpen games. But we're seeing even more than normal go to the old-fashioned bullpen game where it's just a parade of, of, of nine guys throwing one inning apiece. Uh, I still, I think if Tampa's given its druthers, I think they'd still prefer five guys to go six and a third innings. They just don't have five Blake Snells. It'll be really interesting to see when Brett Honeywell comes up and and some of their other starters how they treat them, but um, I think it's I think I think it's going to be it's gonna it's not going away, but I don't know that it's going to become it, it, that it's just going to be the wave and that everybody's going to do it, primarily because I don't know that you know not every team has a Ryan Yarbrough that's capable of doing this sort of thing, and you know I don't they've never come out and said it, but I think one of the reasons that the that Tampa is doing what they're doing because it's easier to sell Yarbrough as much as we poo-poo the win the win statistic it's so much easier to to, to sell Ryan Yarbrough on you know you're only going to go four innings although he's gone five and six you know if you if you if you do it this way dude you can still get the win you know you can still get that W on your record you know and and you know you're, you're not going to face the the order the third time through and if we have our our, our closer come in or our opener come in and and get through the top of the order the other team stacks their first three hitters, so they have the platoon advantage. And now we bring an off-handed pitcher in, and suddenly they have to either pinch hit or, or the pitcher has the platoon advantage. I think we'll see some of that. But I don't see it becoming – I don't think we're going to be talking about all 30 teams doing it because I don't think they have the inventory to pull it off. No, I love it, and I think it's great. I think you're right. We're not going to see all 30 teams do it. But if you go back to – to me, I go back to sort of – you know, the original implementation of this. And the first time the Rays did it back in June in Anaheim, as PD was alluding to, they did it because Romo has huge lefty-righty splits and the Angels were a right-handed hitting team and they didn't want to start Yarbrough, in the, in the, who's a lefty, in the first inning against, you know, three right-handed hitters, including Trout. So it was really, you know, knowing Yarbrough wasn't going to go deep into the game anyway, it was really a move to try to get the platoon advantage on the toughest part of the Angels lineup. And I would think they'll keep doing that because you can keep doing that to protect, you know, especially a left-handed hitter, or if you want to do the other thing and use, uh, you know, a lefty reliever in the first inning against a team that swings, you know, that tilts to the left up top. I think that's a natural advantage that a bunch of teams are going to claim. And, you know, let's not forget, you know, it's a copycat league and, you know, these super bullpens have propagated in recent years, you know, after the uh, sort of the Yankees have been doing that for a couple of years now and more teams are bothering, are gathering that. And then in some sense, this opener and this reliever out of the bullpen concept isn't that different or is sort of a, a cousin of what the Astros were doing in the postseason last year when they were letting their, you know, Charlie Mortons and those guys go, you know, three, four innings at a time out of the bullpen later in the game. And I think, you know, anytime that something like this has, you know, somebody shows success, it's going to catch on. There are going to be a bunch more teams to look at it next year. It's going to be something, whatever happens, that you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. It's our end-of-season roundtable with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ. I'm Patrick Davitt. Uh, Guys, which infielder or catcher 
do you think was probably on the most fantasy baseball championship teams? And I'll uh, start with Todd Zola. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. Whenever, whenever, whoever goes first, we're probably gonna get the easy one of the bunch. Or the other guy's gonna go. Ah, I wanted to pick him. I'm gonna go Trevor Story, and I think it's 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 not that he was drafted all that late or not. You paid a, a decent money. There's no way you expected Trevor Story season out of him, especially with the steals. So I think I think Trevor Story is going to be on a ton of championship teams, and you know, we as far as what next year goes, there'll be plenty of time to talk about that, but. I think what the biggest thing in story, and this has been documented, I don't recall by who, but he has changed his two-strike approach. And, you know, he used to, you know, be the old softball player, swing really hard in case I hit it, whatever the count was, even with two strikes. He's shortened up and he's changed his two-strike approach. And if there's any ballpark where you just want to focus on contact and try to put the ball in play, it's Coors Field. So he's really benefited from that. Now, whether he carries it over or not, I don't know. In the running, I don't know. But I, uh, I I suspect we're going to see a lot of people thanking Trevor Story in the next couple of days over Twitter. I looked at Trevor Story as well, guys, and uh, of course I'm very impressed with his season, especially the uh, homer and bags combinations, as, as well as counting up everything else. But for me, I think the guy who's going to appear on a lot of winning teams this year is Miguel Andujar. In the ADPs from the NFBC, he didn't even get drafted. He was uh, well into the late reserve, which means whoever got him in the late reserve or maybe even as a first-week fab pickup got a 25-ish dollar hitter, 25 home runs, 85 RBIs, and he didn't spend a round pick, and he didn't spend money in an auction. And to me, that's like uh, having your cake and eating it too. Uh, I love Trevor Story, but I think Miguel Andujar is going to be on a lot of winning teams. What do you think, Ray? Yeah, similar thought process for me. I'm actually one of the people who's benefiting from Andujar, so I might be partial to that story. Um, I will go in a slightly different direction. Uh, you know, same kind of thing. What guy who wasn't drafted or got drafted very late, but... Uh, Adalberto Mondesi uh, you know, was really you know, taken off in the uh, you know, last two-thirds or so of the season here after doing nothing last year. And you know, the impact he's had dropping you know, 25 stolen bases in the second half or you know, something along those lines, 23, I believe, um, you know, to, not just to provide that same kind of monster impact you know, from a fab pickup, but to also you know, be so specialized like that and to flip a category – He's not a one-category guy. He's hitting 300. He's got double-digit home runs, too. But in this age of stolen bases being so hard to find and that category being so compressed, that infusion of 20-plus stolen bases in the second half probably literally flipped a lot of leagues. So I will give him my vote here. All three good picks. I'd like to throw in an honorable mention for Jesus Aguilar of Milwaukee, another undrafted guy who did a really good job. Put up fourth round value, twenty twenty two dollars something like that. Really impressive. Uh, let's move on to uh, outfielders and DHs uh, that were probably on fantasy baseball championship teams, and I'll kick off here uh, with Malik Smith of Tampa, an end gamer reserve pick in fifteen team mixed. He's going to end the season with maybe fourth or fifth round value, thanks to a ton of stolen bases, almost forty now, and uh, a three hundred batting average with more than four hundred fifty at bats, which is going to pull up any fantasy team's overall batting average. I think Malik Smith is going to be on a lot of winning teams this year. Uh, what do you think, Ray? Yeah, he's certainly a good choice. Um, I'm going to go with the surprise, let's say the surprising health of Michael Brantley. Um, you know, he's a guy that, you know, I think everybody sort of chopped up to being chronically injured and, you know, was devalued in the preseason as a result. It was sort of a late round pick and whatever you get from him is a bonus. And I don't think anybody 
would have taken the over on 550 at bats and a 300 plus batting average and knocking on the door of 20 homers and 10 steals. You know, it's a, you know, borderline $30 vintage Michael Brantley season that, you know, very similar to what he did in, you know, 2014, 15. And I, he wasn't on sort of my expected bounce back list this season, you know, being on the wrong side of age 30 and given his injury history, I was skeptical of him coming into the season. And if you took a flyer on him, you were richly rewarded. What do you think, Todd? I'm going to go a little different here and use sort of a different philosophy. I'm going to go with Mookie Betts. And people, you know, why Mookie Betts? He, you know, everybody knew he was good. He was a top, you know, eight pick or, you know, top ten pick. He was so much better than we even expected that the difference between the top player and the seventh or eighth player in the first round is the equivalent of a four or five round difference once you get further into the draft. So it, it, it was a huge difference. And to have your, you know, your top player do what he's supposed to do and then some, it lets you take advantage of the Mondeses, it lets you take advantage of the Enduhars, it lets you take advantage of, of of these other guys that were, you know, that, that came out, of, you know, came out of nowhere and and helped your team. So you know, you could have if you had if you had Enduhar, but you also had Joey Votto, it didn't matter. It did matter if you had Mookie Betts. So it's just the because he was so much better than we even expected, which is so high to begin with, I bet you Mookie's on. You know, I, I bet you Mookie's on a lot of a lot of. And I think you can say the same thing about Kristen Yelich to uh, you know the next level down. But um, you know, I, I think that uh, I think they're both going to be on a lot of winning teams because they they returned what they were supposed to and then some at a spot in the draft or money in an auction that you're normally just looking to break even. Yeah, I'll say that I'll agree with you there. Todd and I'll say the same thing about Jose Ramirez, who was a you know thirty dollar second round buy, who's delivered you know forty dollar you know top three pick returns, and you know especially if you look where he was in you know the ADP in the snake draft, you know he was probably around pick number twenty, and you know you mentioned Vado and guys like Vado and Anthony Rizzo were going you know sort of right in the same neighborhood, and if you know seasons were swung on whether you got. Ramirez or you got the Rizzo or Votto in that range mm-hmm. and you know that what the, the same thing that Ramirez gives you that you know top tier round one value at a you know round two price is you know cover, does cover up a lot of ills as you're saying a little earlier we were talking about pitchers uh of course starting pitching is still hugely important in fantasy baseball uh what starting pitcher do you think was on a lot of fantasy baseball championships Ray uh, you know, I'll go with uh, Trevor Bauer there. You know, he was, you know, to the extent that there was a, you know, second or third tier in pitchers, he was, you know, down in that, you know, I'll just generalize and call it the, you know, sub-ace level. And then he went off and, you know, even though he missed a bunch of September, you know, pitched to every bit of the ace level across all five categories. And that was, um, you, you know, in, in a year when the ace pitchers actually, you know, held up fairly well. There, you know, there, there were only a few guys from the that sub ace tier who really got up to the next level, and Bauer was one of them. And you know, that sets you up to if you add, you know, Scherzer and Bauer or anything like that, you it almost didn't it didn't matter what else you had on your staff. You were all set. Todd, who's your starter on a winner? Mine's going to be Patrick Corbin, and there were a lot of pitchers that we could choose, but I'm this is almost in a in a, in a way to 
you know, not so much to apologize, but just to say, you know, come out and say, I was dead wrong on Patrick Corbin, even with the humidor, which did what it was supposed to do. I still, he for me, he went from being a reserve to being on my late radar, and he's pitched like an ace. And, you know, whether the arm holds up because he's throwing more sliders, that's, you know, a story for a different podcast. But, and, and one thing about Patrick Corbin, too, is he was probably on rosters the entire year. You mentioned Andohar before, Patrick. One of the things about Andohar is you didn't play the game of is he going to play, is he not going to play. Once he came up, he was up for good. You know, you mentioned Jesus Aguiar. You know, teams were probably reticent to put him in their lineup. Is, is Eric Dames going to play? So all that goodness, the, the $25, did a team really realize it? Well, they realized it with Corbin because at least if you, if you drafted him, you probably trusted him and you put him in and you got all 30, 32 of his starts. And darn it, he, you know, he was a, he, the numbers are a late round or not a late round, but a late, you know, a, a, a late SP1 type of numbers. And that, that just, I did not expect that. I think uh, Blake Snell of Tampa is one of the great stories of the year, mm -hmm. period. Uh, pretty rare to see 20 game winners anymore. We're seeing uh, Blake Snell win 20 games. He's probably looking to finish with an ERA under two, a whip under one, more than 200 strikeouts. When I looked at the ADPs, Snell was a 14th round pick by consensus, and he's going to finish with first round ace level value. Uh, I'm not sure where he's going to go in drafts in 2019. I'd say probably not in the first round because people are going to be a little reluctant to throw in that, that kind of a bet on a guy who's done it exactly once. But uh, he's definitely going to be in the conversation with mm -hmm. some pretty good pitchers. And guys, we were talking about relievers earlier as well. Uh, what reliever or closer do you think was probably on a lot of fantasy baseball championships, Todd? I'm going to go with Di uh, Diaz, Seattle's Diaz, Diaz. And you know, I, I'm you know, I'm kind of the guy that runs a crusade of closers do more than get saves. The ratios help too, but they get saves. And then the number of saves that 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 he, that he provided. You often you, maybe you didn't have to use a third closer, uh, or you you could be a little more. You know, sometimes you may not even have to use a second closer. It just allowed you to to really manage your staff to maximize wins and strikeouts. So uh, that that's I think that he's gonna and he you know he was he went high. He wasn't a surprise Diaz, but I think I just think man all the you know almost coming close to challenging sixty, you know those extra. 12 or 13 more than what you expected are just not only do they help in the saves category the way they help manage your team i think he's going to be in a lot of winning teams i thought it was interesting that ray talked about 30 30 uh save closers here you got a guy who's almost a 60 save closer it's like having two for the price of one uh, yeah. my guy's josh Hader of milwaukee uh, not a lot of saves he had 11 of them and i think that goes to what ray was saying about saves being more widely distributed amongst relief pitchers he also got six vulture wins you got a love an 079 whip a 231 era and 138 strikeouts in 78 innings and this was a guy who got picked up in the 21st round by adp finished in the sixth round by baseball hq value mm -hmm. and to me that's a championship level profit uh, what do you think ray uh you guys left the door open for me it's kind of todd's argument but I'm going to go with uh, Blake Trinan, you, the guy who's literally the five-category closer. You know, he you, in the in the age of the death of the 30-save reliever, he's still got 37, which isn't, you know, Edwin Diaz territory. But, you know, he chipped in nine wins, mostly because the A's were aggressive about 
using him in tie games. And the sub-1 ERA and the .83 whip, just to you know, round out the value there, he was so, you know, wasn't the one-man solve for your saves category the way Diaz was, but he really, really propped up all five categories. He's going to get to 100 strikeouts before it's all over, and uh, quite literally across the board, I think as good a closer season as you can ever find. And 80 innings to boot, which is usually 60 or so is what we look for from a closer. So you're kind of getting a bonus one-third of a closer season with those wicked decimals, uh, 080 uh, ERA and an 082 whip. That's just that's just unbelievable, actually. It's the only way to put it. Uh, let's move on to the guys we think maybe killed the most fantasy baseball teams uh, or were found on a lot of uh, less successful teams, we shall say politely. Uh, for me, the uh, the killer was Gary Sanchez of the Yankees. Uh, partly, of course, injuries cut into his playing time. He's going to have, I think, under 350 at-bats but also because he just didn't hit. He he had 16 home runs, I think, uh, so far, but his B.A. was uh, 180, and uh, this is a guy who is a consensus second-round pick, and I think anybody who picked Gary Sanchez in the second round really regrets having done it. Uh, what do you think, Ray? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I think you're right. There weren't, as it turns out, there weren't that many you know grenades or landmines in the first two rounds of the ADPs. Um, compared to prior years, at least, but Sanchez was certainly one of them. Uh, I, I, I'm a little partial to Joey Votto in that same range, more because to me, Sanchez's disappointment was a little more predictable. Votto was supposed to be the, you know, metronome, the guy who just does the same thing every year, and you could pencil in the 300 and the 30 home runs. And, you know, clearly he wasn't right physically, even though he didn't, you know, spend a ton of time on the DL, and that's, Probably what went wrong here and cost that, but to you know, to spend that second round pick, that you know twenty eight to thirty dollar expense on two eighty five and twelve home runs in this day and age is just uh, you know super painful. And if you did that, you know I I think I have if you fell into this hole, I think I have more sympathy for you than if you made the corresponding purchase of Gary Sanchez. So I'll I'll opt for Votto. What do you think, Todd? Well, I think I drafted Votto with the 14th pick in my NFBC league, and I'm not doing very well in my NFBC league. So, and he would fin- he finished ninth and eleventh the past two years. So I think it was a justifiable pick, you know. So I, I kind of I I agree with Ray. But the guy I chose, and this kind of goes with what I talked about before with Mookie Betts, you know, the same philosophy anyway. I'm actually going with Jose Altuve, and I've seen people on Twitter say, "Well, how can you call it a bust year when he did this and he did that and he did this and that." Yeah, that you know, take the name away. It's a fairly good season, but you expected much more out of Altuve. And you know, the fact that I had him number one aside, if he was either number one or two, and the drop from number two down to where he was is just huge. And the other thing about it is, when you drafted Jose Altuve, you probably you, you planned your team in a certain manner. Okay, I, I can I, I I I've got a ton of batting average buffer, so I can eat away at that with this player. And I'm going to get, you know, more power than normal from the middle so I can do this and that. It, it just affects, you know, the domino effect down the line. So not only did you not get what you wanted to out of Altuve, but the, the team construct may have been, also was hurt. So, you know, I don't, you know, in a vacuum, yeah, I mean, every, you know, there were a lot of players that wish they had a Jose Altuve season. But relative to what was expected, I think he's just, I think he's going to, he just, I think he just, you know, bludgeoned or harpooned a lot of teams i actually toyed guys with uh 
picking Chris Davis of Baltimore. He was drafted very low. He's been uh, struggling for years, but not low enough. Uh, it looks like uh, he was tied for 982nd in fantasy value at Baseball HQ. Almost 1,000 players did better than Chris Davis this year, mostly because he hit 170 in 470 at-bats so far. And uh, I did a little bit of arithmetic. If you had a, a team batting average of 260 in 6,500 at-bats and you replaced a 260 hitter, with uh, 470 at-bats of Davis's 170, he would drag your overall team average down by seven full points. And uh, that's one of the things about a bad batting average is, unlike not getting counting stats, a bad batting average can actually pull you backwards. Uh, what outfielder or DH Ray do you think killed the most fantasy baseball teams? Uh, you know, I'm going to... I'm hesitant in this area to go with the injury excuses, so I'll stay away from... Chris Bryant, who I think is a you know pretty obvious answer at the top of the draft here, but I'll go with um, I'll go with D Gordon. Just you know, we, we haven't really talked about the uh, death of the stolen bases much, and you know, Gordon you know wasn't bad this year in Seattle, but you paid for you know you were hoping for sixty stolen bases, and to Todd's point, you know, you sort of build a team that way. If you think you got those stolen bases in the bank, you're not you know, you're getting some secondary stolen bases, but you don't really have a you know, if you're investing in Gordon as your big stolen base source, you're sort of pot committed to that. And then, you know, Gordon didn't really show up with the numbers we were counting on in the stolen base category. And as a result, you're probably at a deficit there. So uh, when when you, in, you sort of put your eggs in the D. Gordon basket and he doesn't live up to expectations, you've got a big problem. So uh, I'll, I'll go with him. Todd Zola, who's your outfielder who killed uh, fantasy baseball teams? Um. I agree with Gordon, and uh, his name may his name may or may come up later. Um, I know if you want to stay away from injuries, maybe uh, maybe Buxton Byron Buxton's not fair. On the other hand, people that drafted him kind of they absorbed that risk. They knew that it was uh, the, that the potential was there. So I don't think we can use the the injury excuse with Buxton for people that took him. I think it had to be built into their process. And it was a risk-reward pick, and they were not rewarded. So I think in this case, it's it's fair to call out Byron Buxton as a team that torpedoed a player that torpedoed a lot of fantasy teams. Um, and you know, and, and I, I, since I don't think PD will mention it, you know, back to my top of the order, I think I think Giancarlo Stanton did as well. 35 homers is pretty darn good, but we probably when you expected 50 or more, and especially because he has a full season worth of plate appearances. I think anybody, you know, if, if you tell me, you know, Stanton's going to play 155 games and get 700 plate appearances, you know, I'm going to say he's going to get 48 to 50, 52 homers. And, you know, and he 35 is, you know, that's 17 fewer than what you expect. That's that's five five standing points, depending where you are. That's huge. And the commensurate RBI. So I'm giving the vote to Buxton because, but I don't think PD's going to mention Stanton. I just, I wanted to, you know, reinforce the point about, you know, Guys that have good seasons, okay, they weren't bust, but they still hurt you a lot. You know what? My pick is Byron Buxton, and I have a couple of others. Domingo Santana I thought was pretty bad. Uh, Yoena Cespedes is a disappointment as well. But I referred in uh, thinking about Byron Buxton to what I call wishing and hoping owners. And these are guys who look at all the available evidence, namely this guy can't stay healthy, and then the consensus, fourth round, people were taking Byron Buxton. In my American League Tout League, he went for 25 bucks or something like that. And to me, that's 
what exactly what Todd says is evidence that people understood the risk and took it anyway. And unfortunately for them, uh, if you t- if you basically got zero out of your fourth round pick, you put yourself in a really deep hole, and it's going to be really tough to get out of. Uh, not as bad as if you lose a first rounder, of course, but uh, to me, Byron Buxton is going to be a very interesting case next year. I'm curious to see how far he falls. Uh, over to the mound again, uh, what starting pitcher, Todd, do you think killed the most fantasy baseball teams? Um, speaking from personal experience, I'm going to give this one to Luis Castillo, and I know he's turned it on lately, and the last 10 starts have been much, much better. But unfortunately, I I pulled all my commissioners, I pleaded, and I was not able to get his early season stats off of my record. So I had it. Those are still being counted. And he was just, you know, he was just terrible early on. And maybe I'm guilty of of, of aggressive expectations. But even so, uh, Louis Castillo, even if, if people, you know, waited a little longer or paid a little less than I did for him, we're still we're still not happy with the results. I'll preface this by saying these names, Noah Syndergaard, Luis Severino, Carlos Carrasco, and Jacob deGrom. What do all of these second-tier, ace-level starters have in common? They were all taken after Steven Strasburg, who was taken at the front of the second tier of star pitchers. A consensus second-rounder, he threw 121 innings before being shut down. A 15th-round value, he had an ERA just about around 4, a whip of 120. It did contribute some strikeouts, of course, in his 121 innings, but boy, oh boy, I think anybody who devoted a second or third-round pick to Steven Strasburg must be really super disappointed. Ray, who's your uh, starting pitcher? I'll be quick. Uh, I'll throw two two more of those sub-ace guys out there. Uh, Chris Archer and Jose Quintana were both in that, you know, I don't know, round five to eight, you know, 20-plus dollar range, and both, uh, you know, were pretty bad when they were on the mound. Quintana arguably worse because he wasn't on the DL and he was healthy and just bad for longer. Uh, so, you know, just a couple other guys to add to your good, your good nominees, too. Over we go to relievers uh, that killed fantasy baseball teams. My choice for a reliever who killed a fantasy baseball team, Ken Giles. He went in the closer runs that usually take place in the seventh round or so. That implies a value of, I think, 13 or 14 bucks. He'll be lucky to finish the season above $0. He had a dreadful first part of the season, uh, had some bad luck with a 5 ERA that was double his expected ERA, but he blew up in a lot of games, especially when he wasn't in in save situations. He's going to finish the year with 25 saves. He's got 12 of them already in Toronto in a relatively short run. Uh, And I'll sound a cautionary note about anybody who's looking at Ken Giles as a bounce-back candidate. His Houston ERA was double his expected ERA, his Toronto ERA is about the same as his expected ERA, and that, to me, that's a real danger sign if you're looking at Ken Giles as a as a rebound candidate. Uh, Ray Murphy, who's your reliever who killed fantasy teams? I'll go with the guy that Giles was traded for, Roberto Asuda. Uh, we we stipulated an injury uh, exception earlier. We weren't going to call guys out for injuries, but Asuna's legal troubles were not the same as an injury. So I'm going to call him still eligible for this. And, you know, his represent reprehensible conduct, uh, you know, had the you know side effect of blowing up a bunch of fantasy seasons too. So uh, I'm not equating one level of uh, problem with the other, but uh, that was a particularly bad blow to his owners who were, um, uh, who were counting on him for saves and thought he was a consistent, reliable uh, save source coming into the season. 
And I should point out the uh, prosecutors in Toronto have uh, dropped the charges against Roberto Osuna because the uh, woman in question is back in Mexico and refuses to come back to testify, and there's no case without her. Uh, Todd Zola, who's your reliever that killed the fantasy teams? I'm going to go, well, honor, honorable mention to Roldis Chapman, but I'm not, I'm not going to go there just because I think some people did back off him just a little bit. But I'm going to go with Cody Allen. And even though the smart money didn't have him down for 40 saves because of the presence of Andrew Miller and, and some other things going on, I, his, his ratios blew up a bit, 399 ERA, 1.29 whip. We can, you know, we can talk, you know, luck, skill, whatever. The fact being, at this point of the season, it doesn't matter. If we're, if we're looking back, it is what it is, and those numbers hurt. Didn't get the strikeouts that he normally did. With, with, you know, he'll end up maybe in the low 80s. You expect mid 90s for him. And you know, 27 saves. Maybe, maybe I thought he'd get five or six more. Again, he wasn't a 35 to 40 guy. But even so, I think across the board, uh, Cody Allen's season especially because he was probably taken as your top closer, is going to go down because he, he's actually hurting you, you know, I don't know about wins, but he's hurting you in, in, in four of the five categories in which the closers can contribute. All right, boys, this has been excellent so far. Let's uh, take a breather here. We'll come back in a second talk about next year. Uh, Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire and appears on our weekly Talk with Todd here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. As I said, when we come back, it's part two of our Baseball HQ Radio end-of-season roundtable edition. Looking ahead to 2019, stay with us. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the board HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our roundtable edition with Ray Murphy and Todd Zola. Todd, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, PD. And Ray Murphy, ready to go? Always. All right, well, then uh, let's start with Todd Zola. Uh, who are your top five picks for next year's draft? Okay, my top five picks are going to be Mookie Betts and Mike Trout. I have those. 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 I mean, you're not going to talk me out of that. Depending on, I, I'm going to hedge here. Depending on the draft, I'm willing to go Max Scherzer as early as number three. So I'll put him there at number three. Uh, JD Martinez is my fourth, and Francisco Lindor is my fifth. If I'm in a draft where I just know pitching is going to go a little bit later, I may take Scherzer out and put Jose Romero in as his number five. But um, I'm willing to take Scherzer as early as number three uh, next year. My top five sound pretty similar, but I'm going with Mookie Betts and Mike Trout, one, two. Uh, Jose Ramirez, third. Christian Yelich, fourth. And I'm going with Max Scherzer in my five spot. But again, if I was actually in a draft, and it would depend on what I thought other guys were going to do down the, down the line with pitching, I, I might take Scherzer or move him a little bit deeper as well. What do you think, Ray? I think you guys have all the right names. Uh, the only one I didn't hear that I'm interested in is, uh, you know, he's pricing out at more of the back end of the first round in terms of value this year, but I will still consider Nolan Arenado up that high. I still think he's got the high, one of the highest four category fours around, 
And uh, I think that's got some value. And if I'm weighing him against, you know, uh, you know, if, if, if I don't want to do the pitcher and if Betts, Trout, Ramirez, and Lindor are all gone, I, I might very well do that before I did, say, Yelich, just because I'm worried about Yelich's fly ball rate and home run per fly. For me, the uh, the idea of offensive players was there's so many guys that I'd like to get early just to get the five categories rather than four. And for me, that's what pushed Nolan Arenado down a bit. I, I like the idea of starting off with 30 stolen bases to go with my 30 or 35 home runs. I thought that was uh, um, something to something to think about that we haven't had the opportunity to think about in, in the last few years. Uh, moving on, Ray, uh, Let's go back to the infielders and catchers. Uh, who will be on your sleeper list or call it your target list or guys you're going to be keeping your eye on for the 2019 drafts? Uh, you know, it's funny. You talk about that uh, you know, power-speed combo, and that's certainly something I'm interested in trolling for at the draft table. And uh, a place I might go looking for it is with the disappointing Yohan Mankata this year. Uh, you know, Todd alluded to the White Sox earlier that they might uh, they might be better sooner than later. And Mankata showed some flashes, especially early this year, that he got hit on the hand and some of his uh, play discipline gains seemed to go away. But, uh, you know, another year of development there. And, you know, we know he's super toolsy. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be drawn player-to-player comparisons, but if we look at the way Javi Baez broke out this year, uh, Mankata might be a little young for that. It might be more than a year away. But I, I think he's got... You know that kind of explosiveness, and I might go fishing for that. Um, I don't, you know, I'm too, I'm too early to predict where his ADP is going to fall, but I'm pr- you know it, if it's south of say pick 100, I'm going to be pretty interested in that. Todd Zola, who do you like uh, in the infield or in the catcher spot? Okay, so after hearing Ray's uh, plaudits about Adalberto Montesi. I'm going to remove him from sleeper. From a, he, the, people are going to be discussing him all off season. He's already a hot button topic. Um, so I'm going to go with somebody more under the radar, and that's Johan Camargo. And we don't know what's going to flesh out with Atlanta. Kind of alluded to youngsters before. They've got Austin Riley, who was really hitting very well towards the end of the year. And many people expected him to be up, but the main reason he wasn't was of Johan Camargo. And, PD, we've talked about multiple position eligibility. The third base shortstop is, is huge. And I, I haven't looked this week, but I, I keep saying that, and then I always look, and it's always been the same. He has led the Braves in RBI. If he hasn't led them, it, he, he's very close since June 1st. And he's been doing it towards the bottom of the order. So I this is a guy, one of my teams, I want that flexibility. And I think he's going to have a job. And if it means that, that pushes Dan to be Swanson out of shortstop. I think I think Camargo has shown that he's the better player right now, and Atlanta will will play him over Swanson if Austin Riley shows that he's worthy. And I don't think he's going to be right away. I think they're going to leave Riley down. I loved uh, Camargo as well, uh, but my guy is Danny Jansen, the uh, catcher for Toronto. I fabbed mm-hmm. him a couple of weeks before he got called up, and he's been really productive in a short run here on my team. He's batting two sixty seven. He's got three home runs, just eight RBIs, but he's only had 87 plate appearances. You're looking at 15 homers, 50 RBIs, something like that in a, in a regular catcher season. And Toronto... I think there's a playing time possibility here. They've given up on Russell Martin. They might turn him into a utility guy of some kind. The other choices are journeyman Luke Maley, and he's not that great. They've got another prospect, Reese McGuire, but he can't really hit that much. 
and when you look at this Jansen kid, he draws walks. He's got an OBP over 350, which is a real asset because that Toronto lineup has four or five guys that were under 300 OBP this year. Uh, and one other thing about uh, Danny Jansen, he stole five bases and six tries in AAA this season. He hasn't run in the big leagues, but I wouldn't be surprised if he picked up a handful of bags, which for a catcher could be really helpful. Uh, how about an outfielder or DH who's going to be on your sleeper list or target list for 2019? Now, this time, let's start with Todd. All right, let's uh, a few choices here. Let's go with Tommy Pham, and the assumption here is he didn't play a full season. He's got some injury issues that they, he may get a bit of a discount in the market next year. And if you if you look at the numbers that he turned in with the Rays, he's fine. Um, and you know there still is an injury concern, especially because he's on turf, and it's not just a degenerative eye condition. He's had some lower body injuries, and I'm concerned that he's playing on turf. But I think there'll be enough of an injury discount and uh, enough of a discount built in that I'm going to be willing to, you know, he's not going to be my first outfielder taken. At least I hope not. But I would not be surprised if I have some, as they say, shares of Tommy Pham in some mixed leagues. I'm going to be looking at Nomar Mazzara again. He's uh, often seen by fantasy owners as a bit of a disappointment, but it's mostly because he doesn't have the breakout season that everybody keeps waiting for. But he keeps turning these useful profits every year. Uh, he's a 10th round value, uh, maybe 11th or 12th round pick, three straight 20 home run seasons, 80 RBIs this year, 100 last year. And what really intrigues me, guys, about Nomar Mazzara is that he's finishing his third full season in Major League Baseball this year, 500 PAs at least in all three of those seasons, and next April he turns 24. And to me, that's a real a real recipe for a possible breakout, and I'm going to be really hopeful that all the other owners are tired of waiting for him and have given up, and I'm going to hopefully sneak in there and scoop Nomar Mazzara for the breakout. Ray, who's your guy? Um, you guys tell me if I'm being too obvious here, but I'm going to try Michael Conforto. You know, his value was greatly depressed this preseason because there were concerns about the lingering shoulder injury. He came back pretty quickly, started pretty slowly while he was pretty – Clearly still not 100%. Ended up playing basically the full season, but the power didn't really come back to the second half. And I'm looking at the second half now, and it's 260 with 17 home runs. And, you know, you take say a lot of the stuff you said about Mazzara, you know, he's at a you know spot in the growth curve at age 25 that if he comes back in 2019 and is healthy to start opening day, you know, the full season numbers here might be depressing – or masking what a you know what a what, what a second half times two or what his peak numbers would look like, and I could see you know two you know batting average creeping up two seventies or above with you know thirty plus home runs, and I maybe I'm wrong or maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but I don't think you're gonna have to pay for that. Moving over to starting pitchers, uh, I'm going to go first here with a guy who's on my sleeper list or target list. Uh, I know those are different things, but hey, let's be flexible. I was actually going to talk about Trevor Bauer. I think he could be a true sleeper. Uh, well, not a true sleeper, but a true sleeper ace level pitcher. But uh, since Ray already mentioned Trevor Bauer, I'm going to go with Ronaldo Lopez in Chicago. The White Sox had another nondescript season, seven wins, a four-ish ERA, 125 whip, 146 strikeouts, which wasn't that great. But he's 
he's got really good stuff, and he's getting better results as the season comes along. He's adding some uh, changes in his pitch mix, slider and changeup especially. And in his last five starts, guys, including one at, at New York, the Yankees, and one at home for Chicago, uh, the Cubs, and these are two teams gunning for playoff positions. Five five quality starts in his five starts, three wins, 0.79 ERA, 0.77 whip, a dominance ratio of 10 strikeouts per nine, and a walk rate of 1.6. That's a command ratio of six strikeouts per walk in his last five starts this year. My only warning is that I will be targeting Lopez next year, and being on my fantasy roster has been something of a curse for starting <laughs> pitchers, so don't say I didn't warn you. Uh, Ray Murphy. Uh, Todd mentioned Luis Castillo earlier. I'm a big last year's trash, this year's treasure guy, so... He'll probably be on my list too, but we don't need to talk about him anymore. Uh, let me throw Nick Pavetta out there, sort of a similar ilk. Wasn't you know nearly as high as Castillo this year, but he's a guy whose you know skills have been much much better than his results this year, and that's a well that you know I will sort of always go to. So if people think that Nick Pavetta is you know should be valued where his ERA is this year, I will buy him at that price and hope that he pitches to his skills next year. Todd, what do you say? Yeah, real quick, you guys picked a couple of guys that I've been looking at. So I want to, to really quick to, to piggyback on Pavetta. I know you can't do this. They happened. They occurred. They're in the stat book. But he had two terrible outings against the Nationals. Take those out, and the numbers look a whole lot better. And that, that account, you know, that that's the difference between the expected ERA and the real ERA. It all evens out. And when you talk about Lopez, PD, his teammate, Lucas Giolito, kind of had a similar surge in the second half. I know that I know that HQ, they, that you guys look at first and second half. I don't think I look at it as much as you folks do, except when it comes to young pitching. And I think those are both instances where I think it's actionable how the two of them had uh, uh, Giolito and Lopez had better second halves. But I'll put a, I'll, I'll put a word in uh, for Eduardo Rodriguez. And the reason being... Uh, we've seen a whole lot of good in between some injuries. And one of the main injuries has been to his knee. And he had a couple, I don't want to call them flukes, but he injured his knee in a, in a bullpen session and whatnot. And although he has had some other stuff, the knee was supposedly taken care of. So if the knee is indeed taken care of and some of these other nicky-knack injuries you know, that, you know, that all pitchers get go away, I think we're going to begin to see the consistency that we need out of Eduardo Rodriguez. And if there's, you know, there's a disadvantage to being a lefty on a team with two really good lefties in that teams can get used to facing left-handed batters. But he, if he's a sponge and he starts to pick up some knowledge from a Chris Sale and a David Price, I think we could see Rodriguez uh, benefit in that manner too. So uh, it's not going to cost us a lot. He's got the injury-prone label, but I'm just hoping that the knee is okay and we're going to start to see the consistency because he's, uh, he's shown he can be really, really good. And then we've also seen the high, Chekyll and Hyde version where he's not so good. Hoping with the injury taken care of, we see more of the good than the bad. Over to the bullpens, uh, relievers and closers. We all have sleepers for the you know, second saves guy and that kind of thing. That might be changing, as Ray talked about at the start of the show. But we have targets, we have sleepers. And Ray Murphy, who's caught your eye as far as the guy uh, that you might be looking at for your bullpen in the 2019 fantasy season? You know, this one is so hard to do because there's going to be so much movement and you know, we're not, we, we don't know where the jobs are going to land come March. Uh, one guy who I'm watching just this week is 
Trevor May, who's kind of crept into the eighth inning role in Minnesota. And, you know, Trevor Hildenberger has been the nominal closer since Fernando Rodney left, but Hildenberger has been uh, showing more than a few sparks, shall we say. So, you know, if you know, Minnesota might you know decide to throw money at that problem, but if they don't, then, you know, to me, May is a guy who could, you know, work, work his way into at least part of a season's worth of saves next year. So that's, uh, that, that's something I'm putting a pin in at this point. We'll check back in in you know, January or so and see what's developed since then. Todd Zola, who's the reliever for you? I'm going to go with Jose LeClerc and the Texas Rangers. And the thing that the thing about look, I mean, the numbers are, are, are great. You, know, you look at the back of the baseball card this year, and you're going to see really good numbers. The number that sticks out the most to me, and again, this is probably just me, and that was just my... I don't know, naivety or whatever it was, he's only 24 years old. He kind of, to me, had the profile of being one of those 31-year-old 30, journeyman relief pitchers and, you know, just kind of how they use him and what they t- talk about him. He's only 24. So I know Texas won't be very good next year. At least I don't think they'll be very good next year. But I think he's got the, the, the skill set to be a closer. He's got the strikeouts to be a closer. I think he has the durability to be a closer. All right, I'm not going to, especially in, in the light of what Ray's talking about with fewer saves, I don't think I'm going to be projecting for 35 to 40 saves. But as my second, you know, third closer in a mixed league, all right, there'll be some reversion, regression with the ratios. But I, I think he's going to have the job, and I, I think he'll keep the job. He's shown that he can, and that's the kind of guy I'm going to look for. Uh, I think there might be a discount because he's on Texas. I think he can handle Arlington and – I, I I'd love him. I don't know who my first closer is going to be, but I'm pretty confident I'll have a lot of Jose Leclerc as my second. I don't know that he'll be available as a second. Well, there is that. I suppose it depends on the. Uh, it depends on the. You know, everything's contextual, and and that's. Uh, we shall find out. Maybe 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 you know what? Maybe this is a case where the ratios are just so off the charts good that it hurts my argument. You know, of course they're going to regress, but they're just so off the gar- ch- off the chart good. They have to catch people's eyes, and maybe you're right, Ray. Maybe I have to look at him as all right. I'm not going to take Craig, you know, Kimbrel or whatever, but maybe you know, maybe I'd have to take him as my first closer, and maybe hit a second closer maybe a little bit earlier because the number of saves will, will you know, at least on paper, won't be as high as on some teams. I'm going to go with Wade Davis. Uh, he, he was perceived as bad, and there was a narrative around him that he was bad and struggling and all this kind of stuff, and he finished the season, uh, or at least at right now as we speak, 426 earned run average. But he has 41 saves. He's got 74 strikeouts in 65 innings and a 107 whip. And when I looked into it, he's got a 67% strand rate, which is really low for a closer, and it's 20 points worse than his career norm. So I think the ERA might be a little bit unlucky for Wade Davis, and I think he finishes 2018 around a 10th round value. I'd be happy to get him in that range as a decent buy in 2019. Maybe I'm crazy, I don't know. Uh, What infielder or catcher, Todd, will you be sure not to draft next year? Well, it's uh, Ray alluded to him earlier, and that's going to be our friend T. Gordon. And I think the primary reason for me is Seattle has shown that they don't need to have him, or they they're not again. He may not be their leadoff hitter. And the difference between hitting first and ninth in the American League is 75, 80, 90 plate appearances, which is just huge. 
in Seattle runs, they they, they, they will run, but you're just going to have so far fewer opportunities hitting down below in the order when you've got the Mitch Hanegers and, and, and Juan Segurs and some of their other hitters that they prefer to have at the top of the order now, and who knows who they go and get. So, you know, I, I, Gordon is still an important part, but if he's not leading off, he's not stealing 50 or 60 bases. And if he's not stealing 50 or 60, if people still, all right, I, I want a stolen base, guys, I want to lock down steals, I don't think Gordon's going to do it. I don't think he's going to lock you down. And because he had uh, all those games in the outfielder that, uh, as an outfielder this year, Todd, uh, you can also not draft him as an outfielder. Yeah, I can not draft him in two places. Absolutely. Position flexibility matters. Uh, I mentioned that I'm out on Gary Sanchez, and I, I'm sure I'm not going to be interested before somebody believing in the rebound theory is going to grab him up. I'm leery of Yuli Gurriel in Houston, and the reason is – Houston's got a lot of options <laughs> as far as their uh, offense goes. They've got a ton of excellent offensive players all jockeying for positions, and they've got you know some pretty locked-down good guys in Alex Bregman and Carlos Correa and, uh, and uh, Jose Altuve, of course, in the infield. And they've got this Tyler White who looked really fantastic when he finally got called up this year. He's got uh, 60% or so fewer plate appearances than Gurriel, but almost as many home runs, 12 versus 13, and about half the RBI, so he's ahead of the RBI pace as well. I can see Tyler White pushing Gurriel out of this very loaded lineup, and then uh, he's going to be competing with Marwin Gonzalez for that utility role, and I don't want to pay whatever it's going to cost to get Yuli Gurriel in that role. Ray, uh, how about you, infielder or catcher? Uh you know, I'll go back to catchers. You know, we talked about Sanchez earlier, and, you know, I think the bloom will be off that rose a little bit in the preseason. I don't think he'll go as high this year. But even, you know, I'll throw, I'll throw a blanket over him and Buster Posey, and, you know, Posey's going to be coming over a um, – coming off pretty serious surgery. So, you know, I, I think there may not be uh, – I mean, who's going who's gonna to be the first catcher off the board, and what round are they going to go in next year? I, JT Rizzo. Will there be a catcher that goes in the top eight rounds? I don't know. But um, I'm going to be – I guess I'm going to be off of any catcher who is – you know, is projected up in that range because these guys don't look that reliable to me. Moving over to outfielders and DHs, I'll start with Matt Kemp. He had a great first half and a pretty uh, complete collapse in the second. Then uh, towards the end of the season, he's on the wrong end of the platoon. He's 34 years old, got a history of injury issues. I mean, I, I never say never. There's always a price or a round where the player represents value, but Kemp's 2018 rebound into the eighth round I think is going to get some owner to go higher on Kemp than I'm willing to go. Uh, Ray, what do you think? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I'm going to go with A.J. Pollock. Uh, he seems to be somebody that you know almost gets to be too um, too irresistible to people, despite the injury concerns and you know the the annual you know what ha- what's going to happen to AJ Pollock risk. It uh, seems like he always gets bit up in March when he's healthy, and everyone gets excited about looking at his career numbers and what they could do over a full season. But you know he's quietly been pretty healthy in the second half of the season, and the numbers haven't really been there. So I think now we've got some concerns both about, you know, his durability and also what his baseline skill level is at this point. You know, Todd mentioned the humidor, and that's a factor in trying to figure all of that out. So there's a lot of variables and a lot of down arrows around Pollock, and I don't think he's going to be discounted enough, so I'm probably going to be staying away. Okay. <laughs> Plus, I want I always want to make clear, when Ray was saying people and everyone, he was saying me. Because I'm the guy that uh, I'm the guy that's always been the guy that you know what 
I'm taking this discount on Pollock, and I'm going to run with it, and I always get burned, and I'm no longer taking it. But the outfielder that I'm going to be avoiding, and I may be breaking the internet when I say this, is Ronald Acuna. And that's basically because he's going to be going in, 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 in first, second round wheel. He's going to be a top 20 pick. I'm not as concerned about the performance, but I haven't, I don't know if he can stay healthy. He hasn't proven to me, I should say, that he can stay healthy. He seems to be the kind of ball player that is just, you know, the all-out hustle type that is just going to be prone to a, an injury or two. And, at, you know, at that at that price, you kind of, you know, you need the playing time as well as you need the, the performance. And I'm probably going to be wrong, and he's going to play 154 games. But I'm not the kind of guy that's going to assume he's going to do it without having seen it. So I'm pretty sure that Acuna is going to be priced out of my range. All right, over to the starting pitchers. Uh, Ray Murphy, who's the starting pitcher you're going to be pretty comfortable not drafting in 2019? Uh, I think Madison Bumgarner comes out of the East here for me. You know, even though he's sort of reestablished his health this year, he hasn't really reestablished the performance and the skills. And I'm assuming he's going to be back in San Francisco. And that team just projects to be, you know, uh, I'm sure they'll do something to reinforce things after this season, although they're changing the front office. But, you know, that uh, that team appears to be a dumpster fire going in the next year. So the team context is bad, even though, uh, you know, the home ballpark will remain pretty good. So, you know, Bump Gunner is only, he's only going to be, what, 30 next year? But um, I, you know, we, we might be on the uh, getting into the gentle fade portion of his career and weigh the team context around that. And I'm probably not interested in what it's going to cost. Todd Zola. See, I was going to go with, excuse me, I was going to go with Trevor Williams, but I wonder if I, I mean, I'm going to, I still, I'm not going to be drafting him, but he may be, just be too easy, because I think anybody who understands regression is going to realize that this guy's just been, Lady Luck has been by his side all season long. So I'm going to go with a guy with a, a bigger name, Kyle Hendricks, and I think people may be turned on to him a little bit, because he had a strong second half with an increased strikeout rate, and I think people may rationalize, look at that. And hope he carries it over and becomes a new guy. I don't think he's become a new guy. To me, he's still a, a nice pitcher. But in today's uh, landscape where strikeouts, you just need strikeouts, I think he puts you at a disadvantage. And I know the ratios are good. But I, I, I don't, I'm not buying into the second half surge with the strikeouts to be sustainable over the next season. And I think other people will. All it takes is one in every draft. And uh, I will not be... I will not be invested in Mr. Kyle Hendricks. I will not be investing in Mr. Chris Archer. He laid another fantasy egg this year, a four and a half ERA, a 140 whip. Uh, of course, he's a great guy to get strikeouts, but it costs too much to me. Uh, the, somebody always grabs him thinking this will be the year that he tosses up a 310 ERA or something like that. I just don't see it happening. His earn run average since he got traded to Pittsburgh is almost five, so it's going in the wrong direction. And I would also like to make a Quinella bet on Marcus Stroman and Aaron Sanchez in Toronto. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one's going to be worse than the other one. I'll take them either way. I'll box the Quinella or whatever I have to do. Uh, Stroman seems to have lost whatever mojo he had last season. And Sanchez, I don't know what's going on with these finger blisters. Uh, can't they get this guy a jar of pickle juice? I'm out, I can tell you that. Uh, Todd Zola, mm-hmm. wrap us up with uh, reliever or closer you're not going to draft next year. I'm not going to draft Edwin Diaz because people are going to be drafting those saves. And, you know, he did, a, he did a great job. But you just can't count on Seattle having those close games again. So um, I'm not going to be in on Edwin Diaz at the price that he's probably going to be a a top three closer, and I just those saves are not bankable. I think the skills are, but I don't think the saves are. 
Geez, uh, you 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 pick one, you pick the same guy to uh, talk about as the best closer, and then you say you're not going to draft him. I think that's uh, terrific because I'm doing the same thing. I'm picking Wade Davis. I, I know he's. I said he was a target, and I think there's reasonable reason to say that. But there are also a lot of warning signs here for Wade Davis, most notably a pretty significant jump in hard contact, but also including a walk rate that's now a, a second year in double digits, a dominance rate that fell from 12 strikeouts per nine to 10.5. His fly ball rate is up above 40%, and a fly ball rate of 40% is not what you want in a Coors Field reliever. And his line drive rate was up this year too, so I think there's... You know, there's some things to say way Davis can be recommended. I think there's more things to say, probably not. And on balance, uh, it'll be a value question as it always is. Ray, last word to you. I you know I think there's a team context element to this. So let me sort of cheat and say I'm not going to be drafting whoever Gabe Kapler says is his opening day closer in Philadelphia. Uh, because, you know, Kapler's just one example, but there are teams, you know, Craig Council's another one, Milwaukee, uh, Tori Lavulo's, you know, careening this way in Arizona, but there are teams where, you know, the manager has established that they're comfortable with the committee or they're comfortable going with a hot hand, which is entirely reasonable and very well may be best for their team. But it means that whoever carries the opening day closer label is probably going to be overvalued. So I'll use Kapler as the example, and I'll say whether it's, Sir Anthony Dominguez or Pat Neshek or um, Hector Neris or whoever it is coming out of March, uh, you know, I'm probably going to have my expectations set to 15 saves rather than 30 there, and therefore I'm not going to end up with them. Yeah, and I think we might be able to make that same kind of calculation or, or observation about a lot of teams that have young front offices and young field managers, because I think as they get more and more comfortable with the idea that the save is not the beginning and ending of, of uh, reliever management and they get smarter about it, I think you're going to see the saves, as Ray said right at the top of the show, that uh, the saves are going to be redistributed and less concentrated, and I think that's going to be something we're all going to be dealing with for probably the rest of the time we're playing fantasy baseball because it's not going to change uh boy this has been terrific guys uh, ordinarily this would be the time when we talked about first pitch arizona and tried to get people to uh save up their nickels and dimes and get out to uh, phoenix this november but we don't have to ray it's sold out that's right we uh we have sold all the seats we can sell we're already going to be uh not standing room only but maybe uh you know close friends with the people sitting next to us in the uh ballroom at the salt river marriott so uh if, if Arizona sounds good, put it on your calendar for uh, November 2019, and we'll uh, we'll talk about it then. I'm, I'm wondering about the fire pit out behind the hotel. We're going to have to put people out there in shifts. Yeah, I'm thinking I might try to get bleachers installed around the fire pit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the, and sell hot dogs and peanuts at 9 bucks a pop, too. Uh, Todd Zoll, you'll be at uh, First Pitch Arizona, right? I will. I'm look, looking forward to it. I'm uh, going to spend the entire week there. I'm gonna, I am going to serendipitously booked a hotel in Peoria early in the week because I, I like to see some friends out there. So when it turns out that the surprise team has got the Toronto Blue Jays with Vlad Guerrero and Bichette, I was very happy because I'll, be I'll be seeing three games of Vlad before the conference even begins. Sweet deal. Boys, it's uh, always fun to talk to you guys for an end-of-season roundtable and during the season as well. You've been great contributors to Baseball HQ Radio, and I'm very uh, pleased to uh, to say how grateful I am that you did it. Uh, Ray Murphy, thanks a million for everything that you do. Thank you, Patrick. See you in a few weeks in Arizona. Todd Zola, thanks for everything you do, including Talk with Todd here at Baseball HQ Radio. It's always fun. It's always one of my favorite uh, parts of the week.
Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and a regular writer at the site. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 38 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guests for this special end-of-season roundtable edition of our show, Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com and Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And if you're headed to First Pitch Arizona in November, come up and introduce yourself. I love to meet our listeners. And if you say the secret code phrase, let me buy you a beer, I'll let you buy me a beer. And what could be better than that? Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ, where there are no beer buying opportunities at all. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. And if you wouldn't mind, you can do the show and me a huge favor. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pod, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in early November, live from First Pitch, Arizona, with the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for listening, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.